I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Oh, I didn't write a joke. Wait, flung out of space. Something has become from that. Evil Carol be like, are you from the depths of the earth? <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. This episode will be covering Todd Haynes' 2015 film, Carol, which I'm sure you all know <laughs> if Woo! you're listening to this podcast. It's based on the 1952 Patricia Highsmith novel, The Price of Salt, which was published on an alias, and it's about a woman. Therese, played by Rooney Mara, who meets and falls for an older woman, Carol Eyre, that's played by Kate Blanchett. It was on many favorite lists, top 10 lists of 2015. Rooney Mara won the Best Actress Prize at Cannes. It was nominated for a ton of stuff. And I just read this today. In 2016, the British Film Institute, or BFI, had it voted as the top LGBT film of all time. Although mm. I think in recent years, <laughs> that might be like... <laughs> In recent years, films might be giving a run for its money, but also, I don't know, maybe it was just new and fresh. Yeah, someday we'll yeah. talk about Funeral Parade of Roses. <laughs> yeah. But that's just all to say that this is the popular pick from Haynes' filmography, right? Mm-hmm. But it was one of my favorite films of 2015, and it's one of the few movies that I've actually went and watched twice in a the theater, mm. which was not just for the podcast, by the way. And I'm very excited to talk about it now that I've revisited it six years later. Ooh, quite some time since our first watch of it. Yeah. I think I want to start with like what both of you think about it and how you feel about this being the best LGBT film of all time (laughs) and whether your reaction has changed. I really like Carol. I think the first time I watched it, I was very enamored by the tone the film grain, (laughs) the score that that really like set the stage well for what I would say is a very down the middle, solid, like sad gay melodrama. (laughs) Is it the best LGBT film of all time? No, fuck no. Like far, far from it. Categorically, (laughs) no. I do think Like, since Carol came out and then some other queer films that followed in similar footsteps, like Call Me By Your Name and Portrait Portrait of a Lady on Fire, God's Own Country, you could name so many films that are set in a really, like, idyllic time about gay people being sad, about being gay, and about loving someone else. And even though it was sort of one of the first to pioneer in a big way, I just don't think it's as effective on me anymore. And I think that was a big reason why it didn't hit me as hard as it did the first couple times I watched it, because I think this is my third watch. But still a lot to enjoy and I'm sure a lot to talk about. Well, I'm certainly in no position to make a decision on if it's the best LGBTQ (laughs) film or not ever. (laughs) But I'll say that I saw it in theaters when it came out in 2015, and I thought it was good, and everyone was really gaga for it, and I thought it was fine. Like, I think as Wilson's saying, it's it's a solid movie, and on rewatch, it still lands as a solid movie for me, along with the other technical elements that Wilson admires. Gotta shout out Cardi Burr right in the score. (laughs) Yeah, Cardi Burr. I think part of what gives me a lukewarm reaction is the austerity of Carol stylistically. And I would call it very respectfully directed. And I think that Haynes is a little conscious that he's a male director, though he is gay. He's a male director and he, and he keeps himself outside of the core relationship of Therese and Carol respectfully. But yeah. it is definitely austere and... I respect, but am not moved by that decision in a way that I'm moved by actually pretty much every other relationship in the movie, particularly, I'd say, Carol and her best friend, Abby. Mm. Also, worth shouting out that Harge is a great villain name. <laughs> Harge. Harge. There's so many reviews on Letterboxd where people are like, what the fuck kind of name is Harge? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? 
What's it short I, for? Hargrit? I have a screenshot saved to my computer that I took at the start of the movie, which is the credit card that says, and Kyle Chandler. I don't know when, but it'll come in handy someday. I think for me, I remember the second time I watched this, I was like, yeah, this is still good. And it was also in a theater when I watched it again. And I was thinking, wow, this thing still has that magical effect on me in terms of mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. moments when the characters look at each other and you feel what they feel. Yeah. And so I think, especially the first time I watched it, that was a thing that really like grabbed me. And the first time I watched it, the theater I was in was not great. It was a New York theater where you could hear the subway ha! going past the theater. Angelica. <laughs> oh. Ooh, I wasn't going to say it, but okay. <laughs> oh. I think if, if you live in New York and you've been to Angelica, you would know it. There were many moments where like you were like, oh, is this from the film or is it like from the actual subway running over me? <laughs> I'm not literally running over yeah, you. Yeah, not literally running over <laughs> me. So yeah, it still had that really strong effect on me emotionally in terms of like, investing me in the love between the two characters and the second time i watched it i was like yeah this thing still holds up for me mm-hmm. it was the kind of film that like made me look at it less critically because it worked so well and so effortlessly in mm. investing me in the characters that like i wasn't really thinking about oh you know is this revolutionary is this trying stuff this is just solidly made and it works uh, and so now that i've gone and rewatched it again i still kind of hold those things to be true and i think the only difference now is that it's just a less novel movie because it's not the first time I'm seeing it and also because there's just so much other stuff right now that is also trying different stuff that's trying to talk about love and like give you an emotional investment in, in characters that are in love with each other. Yeah. And I think I was searching for like, what is Haynes doing here that's like different? And I think it's hard to find that thing when you're not watching it for the first time. So now like this became more of a, a cerebral watch in that sense. Mm. But I have to say that the thing that clinches this for me is still the performances of Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Oh, because one hundred percent. I wrote very few mm. notes and I watched it again, but like I wrote one line, which is that it's all in the eyes, baby. <laughs> this is some of the best nonverbal acting in something that's in a pretty almost standard kind of American filmmaking, mm. but done really, really well in terms of like acting and the use of reaction shots and just like pretty normal coverage in certain scenes. This is the two of them working at like hundred. And I don't know, 150% really in terms of like just using their face and their eyes to tell the depths of the emotion that's happening under the surface. Mm. And for me, that is undeniable. And that's what carries the movie for me, despite the things that I'm not so interested in now. Haynes is working a lot with POV and direct optical perspective editing. And I really like that when he shows us a POV shot, it's not a specific fragmentation of a body. It's often to rest looking at Carol in full from a distance in a Mm -hmm. wide. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, helps sell their attraction as more than just physical, that they feel a fuller kind of love. Mm -hmm. When it comes to performance, I really do love Kate Blanchett's performance. I sometimes find Rooney Mara a bit too blank, and I Mm -hmm. want a little bit more from her in the same way that I sometimes want more from Haynes' direction. Ooh, But I also want to hear what you guys respond to in that performance. I really like Rooney Mara's performance. And I think I also really love Rooney Mara's performance. I would say it's the other way around. I do think that sometimes in the movie, Blanchett is maybe doing too much. Mm. Also just because the nature of their relationship as characters is Carol has a lot more power over Therese. Or is even performing power more. and right. Or it's even performing power more. Yes, yes. But it becomes a bit too much for me at some points. Mm-hmm. But I think Rooney Mara's performance is so raw and... It's raw but also restrained, right? Yeah, like he, he keeps on doing it throughout the movie, like to distance you from the characters. Mm-hmm. Not only actually like physically placing like a window or a reflection in between the camera and the character themselves, but also like what they express outwardly and what is captured on screen. But even with all that distancing that we have, I think just one look at Therese's face, looking out the window of a car, it really brings so much emotions to the surface for me as an audience member. And Mm -hmm. 
I think that, yeah, it's, it's in the eyes, <laughs> as Ben said. I remember when this came out, a lot of people talked about that slight dissonance between the acting styles of the two actors, mm. where Kate Blanchett was more kind of theatrical in a sense, and then how Rudy Mara felt like a more restrained cinematic acting style. But I also read a lot of stuff about people talking about how that juxtaposition of acting styles was also part of the power dynamic at play between the two characters. And I think yes. that's really interesting and how it amplifies the way that they are interacting as these two characters and like the performance of being a person in front of somebody else is also a performance as well as Kate Blanchett's character Carol does. Before we get too far into this, but I really like this is like cluing us into a lot of things that we can talk about mm-hmm. later on. Let's learn a little bit about Haynes and Carol and also Patricia Highsmith who wrote the novel that this is based on. Great. Mm. So let's start with Haynes because we're talking about him for two episodes. Uh, he was born January 2nd, 1961 in Los Angeles. His father was a cosmetics importer. His mom studied acting. And he came from an academic background. He went to Brown University. So he was more like, I think, more film studies based. Yeah. But he was also studying in a time when like a lot of those kind of like critical film theory was coming out when he mm. was in, in uni. But you can see in the way that he talks about his films, if you look at any interviews, like he's very referential and also very reverential about like mm. talking about films and also filmmakers and like photographers and writers and stuff. So he's influenced by people's other work. And this is going to be very interesting for our next episode where we're going to be talking about Far From Heaven, which is very specifically a film that references the films of Douglas Sirk. Mm. But we'll get into that. I know that for Carol, he had a huge lookbook of photography. Yes. So Carol's look, he was looking at different 50s films as well. He's trying to find something as like a a touchstone, right? To kind of Mm -hmm. form an idea of the movie around. So I guess he was doing his research, but he couldn't find something that was really the thing. So instead, he looked at photography from the 50s, from people doing street photography in New York City. One of the big ones was Saul Leiter, but also like other female photographers at the time, like Vivian Meyer. Oh. And sorry, there's a few others I can't really remember. He was using the photography as a way to affect the way they framed certain things. Hmm. Saul Leiter we'll get to when we talk about cinematography. So Todd Haynes, he was actually infamous for his first short, which is Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which was yes using Barbie dolls as actors. He got sued, and then you can't actually find this film anywhere now. Well, what? I've never heard of this. Great movie. You have to find it through underground channels and stuff. Or just DM Wilson on <laughs> social media, and I will find a copy for you. It is... Wilson, hook me up with this. <laughs> it is a great, heartbreaking documentary about... Karen Carpenter's life story and how her family ruined her life. And I like sobbed. I was like crying watching these Barbie dolls move. <laughs> well, good stuff. Haynes has kind of a streak of controversy and like infamy, which is surprising because I think in more recent times he's gotten more mainstream and feeling a little bit less of the Haynes that he used to be. His first film, Poison, was a triptych of queer narratives and it was actually under attack by religious groups because it was funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, and the religious groups were not happy that public money was being funded into stuff that they thought was, you know, sexually deviant and stuff. But it won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize. So I think when he first started off, he was very much like a person that was all about going against the grain and doing stuff that was considered transgressive. And he was a person that really championed the subversive. Mm. And you can see that in his films, like that is a theme that he's really interested in. Even in his recent films, like if you look at Dark Waters, which is the film about Teflon, that's a story about somebody who was speaking out against a man which was teflon Mm. so he's always been interested about people who are subverting the norm Mm -hmm. he has these two music films i haven't seen one is velvet goldmine which is somewhat based on david bowie but uses a lot of glam rock songs because david bowie didn't want to let him use all his songs and then he has a bob dylan kind of biopic called i'm not there which actually casts seven people as bob dylan in seven separate little short things including fun fact timothy chalamet yeah and also Kate Blanchett. no no wait, i'm kidding i'm kidding wait. <laughs> <laughs> i was like uh really because <laughs> there was twitter buzz maybe like a year ago when he was like dropping quotations from bob dylan on twitter oh and everyone was like oh is he being cast as bob dylan oh. he would be a great bob dylan like mm. He's in too many things right now, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. See Wonka in theaters Mr. Next year. Wonka. He has another film, Safe, with Julian Moore, which is also really interesting. Also somewhat subversive. He did make this TV show based on Mildred Pierce with Kate Winslet. So yeah, I already mentioned this. His films contain with themes of subversive identities. Some are outright about queer 
stories, but some of them can kind of be seen as analogies or mirrors to queer narratives and mm. identities. Mm -hmm. For example, safe has been read as a sort of analogy to the AIDS crisis, mm. which I think is interesting, but I don't know whether it's completely all there in the text. And he's been considered a leading voice in new queer cinema, and he's as probably you can tell, he's openly gay. Also, he's friends with another deep cut director. Yes, Kelly Reichardt. He and Kelly Reichardt are really good friends. He's also good friends with John Raymond, who wrote a lot of Reichardt stuff. And he also mm -hmm. lives in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. You know, good buddies over there. Feel I should move there if I could. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a little friend of the pod or someone we talked about on the pod last time who showed up in the movie today. I didn't realize. John Magaro. Yeah. Yes. John Magaro. Mr. Cookie. Hello, John Magaro. So that's kind of like a very brief dive into like, who Haynes was. So that's kind of a brief dive into Todd Haynes. So Carol, it's made in 2015. It was actually interesting for Todd Haynes' career because it was the first film that he directed that he didn't write. Ah. Because previously he wrote everything that he made. The film was actually stuck in development hell for a very long time. Mm. The first version of the script was written in the late 90s wow. by Phyllis Nagy, who was a personal friend of Patricia Highsmith. And she was very protective of the story and she had a producer that was guiding it through development for a very long time until it changed hands a few times. There were other directors that were attached to it. And Kate Blanchett was actually attached to it earlier than Todd Haynes mm. as part of the project. It somehow landed in Haynes' lap and then he was like, this is something that he was really interested in. And then quickly from there, the film got made. At some point, Mia Wasikowska was actually slated to play Therese which I think would have been really interesting, but I can't unsee Rooney in the role. Yeah. But as I said, it was based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, The Price of Salt, that was written way back in 1952. And it was published under an alias because she was afraid of becoming a lesbian book writer. And it was kind of like within the genre of lesbian pulp. It was very popular at the time by lesbian readers because it was going against the grain of lesbian pulp at the time because it had a happy ending or a relatively happy ending. Hmm. Because lesbian pulp usually apparently had characters who would die or would be forced to live straight. <laughs> um, so it was just kind of dire in that genre. That sounds like the endings of melodrama and the women's picture, where yes. the characters get what they want and get to live happily for a bit, and then, of course, the ending has to mm. punish them, and you have to feel the sentiment of their life ending up the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. It was very much a semi-autobiographical book for Patricia Highsmith. It actually came about because she actually worked as a sales clerk at a department store, and saw a woman, a blonde woman in a fur coat, and was immediately enamored by her, went home and started writing a draft of something in a fever state because the next day she found out she had chicken pox. Oh, shit. Wow. So this is where the story comes from. She kind of had like a love at first sight kind of thing going on. But I don't think she ever really talked to this person. But it's also based on her own relationships with uh, the women in her life and some of the plot points like Carol losing custody of her daughter because of the divorce proceedings and because of the evidence against her was actually based on somebody that she had a relationship with. And if you don't know, Patricia Highsmith is a psychological thriller writer. She wrote Strangers on a Train, which was adapted by Hitchcock. And she wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley and a bunch of those books. Mm -hmm. One of the big changes in the film is that in the book, Therese is a aspiring theater set designer, which obviously is not in the film, where in the film she is an aspiring photographer. And I think that change that Phyllis Nagy makes for the film really works because of how the film medium works. Who's looking? Who's being seen? Yes. Yes. I think the most interesting thing that I found when I did my research was like Haynes making this connection of Patricia Highsmith as a person who wrote a lot of psychological thriller books about criminals and making this connection of the criminal mind being very similar to the amorous mind. Huh. That the act of being in love is very similar to the act of doing a crime because of the stress and the anxiety of the thing that you're doing. Oh. And the thrill. Yes, and the thrill. And I think that's very interesting. Wilson, you seem un you seem put off by that comparison. <laughs> no, I'm just like I just like I've never made that connection personally, but <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll buy it. It's like the idea of like, you know, when you meet somebody, and especially in a relationship like this at the time, you're not sure if what you're doing makes sense or is normal, right? Yeah. And there's some stress because you're not even sure if the other person is going to reciprocate. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a heist of the heart. So it becomes kind of like ah, a crime. Oh, a heist of Poet the heart. Laureate, huh? Benjamin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's The Price of Salt, which is almost based on. And I think maybe let's start with... Salt's not that expensive. Yeah, it's like 50 cents. 
a pack. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, I think we should just launch right into talking about this film. And I think the place to start is going back to talking about the performances. Okay. And the scene that I really love is the first diner scene when Carol invites Therese to lunch and they go to the diner and they start talking. Yeah. And this is the scene immediately you know that everything is going to be in the eyes, which is the way that they look at each other, but also can't quite look at each other. Mm-hmm. And I think in that scene, if you really look at it closely, Rooney Mara is doing like so much work there to do enough for you to see it, but not too much so it's overdoing it. Mm. She is towing the line really, really well. And it's really a lot of the way that she looks at Carol and finds herself casting glances downwards and is trying to size up Carol. Mm. You also see this in the department store scene when Carol first meets Therese and they're sizing each other up. But that one still has a veneer of, you know, I'm just making a sale. So like there's a bit more comfort there. But in that diner scene, you can tell that they're both trying to figure out what is happening here. Mm -hmm. because I think there's a bit of insecurity because it seemed like almost too easy for both sides that this is happening, Ah. that the other side seems to be reciprocating. That's Mm. At least that's what I read from their eyes where they're like, is this really happening? And is this person really interested in me? That scene also really reminded me of the diner scene in In, in the mood for love. love. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That line at the end that Carol says, my angel flung out of space, is delivered in this incredible kind of disbelief about exactly what you're saying Mm -hmm. Ben. that like is this really working yeah two things that i really love about this scene are that when it arrives when the scene starts you feel that this scene is announcing itself as like this is gonna be a scene baby Mm. like it just feels like it's arriving and there's a thrill in the context that like this could be a defining lunch and also I think there's something that's so simple but effective about the way that Haynes is directing here. It is pretty much just shot, reverse shot. Mm -hmm. And the key decision to me is that the shot, reverse shot is over the shoulder in every case, I believe. I think only at the end, I think he cuts in somewhere close. But he starts off on a wider over the shoulder and then as the scene progresses, goes into a tighter, still over the shoulder shot. But it is basically two focal lengths on each side. Very simple coverage. It's almost an obvious choice, but it's really smartly used because it's totally in service of the performances. It really just lets you get close to them while, and this is why the over the shoulder is a really interesting choice to me, keeping you at a distance. Mm -hmm. It has a feeling of privacy and it's almost intrusive but he keeps you over the shoulder. And I think that also echoes the hesitation and a little bit of calculation that the characters might be feeling Mm -hmm. there of sort of figuring out what's going on. Is it actually this easy? And then when Haynes brings you in close towards the end of the scene, as Wilson's noting, it feels electric because it's working and you get to get away with a line like, my angel flung out of space. (laughs) I think what... This scene also makes me think about a lot when I watch the film is there is a lot going on here in the film where it's showing you public and private spaces. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously a public space. And those over-the-shoulder shots always have some kind of extra background movement in the back where it places them in public. And I think that is a very specific choice because they frame that over-the-shoulder in a way where like they're kind of in the corner more in the corner of the frame than they really Mm -hmm. need to be Mm -hmm. to kind of show you that they're in a space. Mm. And I think that gives you a context of like, okay, you know, they are trying to act in a way that is more mannered for being in public Mm -hmm. and being very polite with each other. And so that's why there's that feeling of like you're intruding on them because it feels like you're watching them from the other booth. Yeah. (laughs) Like you're a child peeking over the booth at the next table over. (laughs) I was thinking a lot about that when I watched it this time where I was like, Look at all the scenes where they're in public. I think there's a lot of distance that he uses with the cinematography where he's trying to make it seem like you're looking at them as somebody else. I was always thinking like, yeah, if I saw the scene without dialogue, it's like Carol and Therese could be just somebody on the street, two women talking, and you just don't know the depths of what's happening with these two women. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why placing them in public spaces is so important where like 
there's the hustle and bustle of the world outside and then there's the thing that's bubbling underneath that if you didn't have the access that you have, you just don't know what's going on. And I think that's why there's so much of using windows to obstruct and shooting through glass and using reflections where it really feels like you're seeing them in some kind of real space, mm-hmm. being a person, struggling with their private thing. Yeah, and I think that choice is very smart in like making you feel like as you're going through the film, you're being pushed into the public and the private and seeing how they change the way they relate to each other in those different spaces. Which is especially important towards the climax of the movie when their private space where they consummate their love becomes violated and mm. is effectively yes. made a public space through the audio recordings of a private investigator yes. next door. Yeah. I kind of see this scene as doubled when we look at the scene that's shown at the opening when Therese mm. and Carol meet up again. It's a great mm-hmm. scene. And I think that these two scenes kind of work in concert because they are covered quite similarly. Mm-hmm. And that scene also has the bustle of the restaurant. But then that scene is even more non-verbal than this scene. Yeah. Where yeah. it's all about how they're talking, but they're not revealing the thing that they're trying to reveal to each other. And Therese especially is the one that's holding everything closer to her chest. When before she was much more pulled along by Carol, but this time she is kind of the one that's holding back from Carol. But then she is not admitting to herself her own love for Carol in that moment. Whereas Carol has put everything all the cards on the table. What's interesting is that the cold open of the film, where it starts at this scene, was actually a construction that Haynes brought in because he was borrowing from David Lean's film Brief Encounter, mm-hmm. uh, which was a narrative device they used in that film, to kind of show you, okay, here's two people where you're not really sure what their relationship is, and then going through the film, coming back to that scene, and then seeing what exactly is their relationship. And I think it's interesting because even this time when I watched it, the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, the first time you see the scene, it looks like Therese is the one that is so-called in a position of less power. But then when you revisit the scene again, you realize that actually Carol is the one in a position of less power. She's the one who is sort of mm-hmm. asking for Therese back. And Therese is the one holding back. Yeah. And that inversion still works. <laughs> it does. Another great thing about that opening scene and repeating it towards the end is that You enter the movie with this guy, Jack, who Mm. leads you into these questions of, who are these two women? Where did Therese go for months? What's he talking about? Who are these people? And then at the end, you're like, no, shoot, get away. Like, (laughs) I don't care about you, dude. Like, (laughs) Which, of course, is a very purposeful and smart construction Mm. because it's, as Ben's saying, Carol and Therese have to exist below the radar in order Mm. to communicate their emotions. Mm-hmm. And here comes this guy who's standing above them. And the coverage of the scene changes entirely. Where oh, it does. instead of yeah. looking down at Carol and Therese from Jack's side, his face isn't in it at all. That's not mm-hmm. what's important anymore. And yeah. you learn to unearth those emotions. In a similar way, one of like my favorite moment in that scene is when is at the end when Carol gets up to leave and when she stands up, her face is basically cut off for the rest of the scene. But she goes to Therese's back and then you have that same over the shoulder, but she's gripping her shoulder mm. and she like mm. squeezes it before she goes. And I feel like even in the, like the first iteration of that scene, that little action, that little hand squeeze really conveyed so much. Of, That's to a me. very strong aching like yeah. feeling. And I cannot yeah. explain why it works so well. Yeah, especially because does. opposed to when Jack comes to the table, yes. he taps her on the on the back, which is what I noticed again on this watch. And it's a very brief, I guess, and like platonic, platonic yeah. tap. Um, and then when Carol leaves the table, it's a longing, it's a longing squeeze. And you, you have Therese's look, right, where she looks yeah. behind her. Oh, God. And it just, it works. Jesus. It's very simple, but it just works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's no words needed, right? And you're like, yeah. I got it. I get it. I get it. And that's the one thing in the first scene that's like, if you are watching this fresh and you have no idea what this movie is about, I think that little moment, you'll get it. You'll understand. Mm-hmm. You're like, this is this is what's going on. Yeah. It's interesting because if you're watching this fresh, that's going to be like, there's something going on here. And then you go on this journey to learn what's going on. 
Yeah. And then when you come back to it, then it's like new again and interesting again. What I found really interesting was John Magara's character is a film nerd. And oh my god. Like, there's this Wait. weird scene at this like near the start of the movie where he's writing down these notes while watching the film, but he has this line, and I was like, wait a minute, this is this is the thesis statement for the film. He says I wrote it down too. Should we say yeah. it in unison, Ben? Okay, let's yes, try. You two say it. it in unison. Ready to find it. Ready. I'm charting correlation between what the characters say and how they really what the characters say and what they really feel. Why is yours different? Because I wrote down more of the line. He added a couple more words at the start of it. When his character says this, I was watching with my girlfriend on this rewatch, and he said that, and I like put my head in my hand, and she was like, "What? (laughs) I feel added." That's it. That's it. I feel personally attacked. (laughs) But what I noticed this time was that when that scene came, I was like, "Lol, what is this?" And then what happens is before Therese goes back to see Carol at the very end of the film. What yeah. do you see? You see She's... John Magaro writing notes in front of a TV as he's watching a film. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever caught this before, but I realized that she's putting two and two together mm. and then realizing that she's not being as like sincere as she could be with Carol mm. in that conversation. And I was like, oh. that's actually really smart and using very little to like say quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I really like that. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. That's the only reason John McGarrow's character makes any sense in this film, honestly. <laughs> like, the, the whole journalist thing also not that interesting. <laughs> well, it's all, it also makes sense because you want to cast John McGarrow in as much as possible. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, the ending comes and really delightful breaking of the formal rules of the movie. No handheld. And then the very ending is all handheld and it uses zooms and it feels like a release and a breath of fresh air where the austerity of the movie can be broken. Yeah. Um, Mm. Also reminds me a lot of spoilers for the movies of Pavel Pavlikowski, the (laughs) ending of Ida. Yes. Mm. Yes, I agree. I really love that scene, especially because of the slow-mo that's used. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how Score. how they keep on prolonging the moment that Carol or Blanchette makes eye contact with the camera and that mm. recognizing that Therese is there and just like everything that clicking moment Haynes tries to hold that from you for as long as possible in this scene. That's why mm. he's trying to elongate that moment and it is really effective in making you really really Mm. anticipate it so when the moment comes it is even more glorious and of course carter burwell's score bolstering that desire definitely his score is doing so much work here and it's not like too much work you know i literally just realized i think the score that's most similar to the one in carol is his score in burn after reading wait what (laughs) in terms of like literal instrumentation and sound they're pretty similar yeah I can I, I can hear it. I can hear it. I love the blocking of the shot where it's kind of Therese's POV searching. Where like you have all these background actors like moving in and out. And then mm. the, the camera is also kind of searching left and right. Mm. And you see her, but then you keep losing her. And then you can see her navigating through the thing to look for Carol. And just using that kind of movement of the background actors really energizes that, that shot to make it feel just more. <laughs> like there's just more going on there. I want to talk about the cinematography also because like I think there's actually other parts where in the film where there is a little bit more handheld mm-hmm. especially when it's like in the car and stuff like that yeah. where you can kind of feel like it's loosening up a little bit mm. when it's with the two with the two women yeah but the cinematography is amazing because Ed Lackman who has worked with Haynes on a lot of his films actually yeah um, one of the greatest working cinematographers out there going off Haynes's lookbook actually so there's so much of these like shooting through glass and like seeing reflections and seeing like dirt and grime on the glass that obscure your view of what's happening. I saw in one of Haynes's interviews where he talks about this, where like he says that it's all about making you not able to see something. So you're yearning to see it even more. Mm. Yep. And I mean, good strategy. That really that applies works, to so much of the movie as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so if you look at the the photography like Saul Leiter, he does a lot of these like reflections and shooting through 
glass or like being obscured mm-hmm. by dirt and like, I don't know, stuff in front of the lens. I think that's also partially kind of adding to that idea of like, you're somebody who is like walking down the street and you look into the cafe window and it's just lady and she's sad. Why is she sad? I don't know. And it has mm. that kind of feeling of like, there are at once people you know, but also strangers. Mm. I think thinking about the film that way, I really, it kind of feeds into the like people watching side of me. People on the street. Which we know you love. (laughs) Have like (laughs) depths of experience you will just never know. Oh, and in terms of the color palette, Haynes has this term that he's throwing around, which he calls it a soiled color palette. Mm, It's sort of like an anti, um, like technicolor melodrama Mm, color palette, which is really interesting considering the that all that heaven allows. Oh no, mm, not all that heaven allows. Um, Far from heaven. Far from heaven. Um, is the movie that we're going to talk about next episode. Yeah. Like the, if you think about the department store, there's like something very muted about everything. It's like Mm. a Christmas movie, but like all the Christmas colors are like desaturated a little bit. Mm. And there's a bit of like sadness to the whole affair, right? Yeah. Sad Christmas movie. (laughs) Yeah, because it's also about, like the big subplot, of course, is that Carol is losing custody of her daughter Mm. because of her relationships with women. And I don't know, like, I just didn't, the color palette really didn't, like, wasn't something that, like, really jumped out at me that much. But I think maybe that was the point, to kind of, like, mm-hmm. be colorful, but also kind of be quite slight. Yeah. I don't think it's trying to be a flashy movie at mm. all, like, visually. But I do think that, like, establishing a time period, it is very important in that. And I guess keeping it simple but beautiful is what I would say the objective of the cinematography in this movie and and the distancing as well with what wilson's saying about building out the time period it does feel very believably lived in and of course well researched oh, and the yeah. set design and props are all yeah. feel very accurate but this yeah. is not for example netflix's standard version of the 80s which is all leg warmers and neon colors and no. i don't believe that people are actually living in the 80s in those things like shout out to sandy powell who Mm, is mm-hmm. just a household name in Hollywood and <laughs> is probably like the only person that you really can trust doing costumes for a period piece because mm. she's done so many period pieces. And I think with this, she really, for both Carol and Therese, very time period appropriate, but also like really character appropriate. Mm, yeah. They fit into like societally fit in and as well just. Also, how they feel inside as characters. I think the costumes work on both lanes. Hmm. Fun fact, Sandy Powell's reason Haynes is directing this. Because uh-huh. she was attached to the film and then like apparently came up to Haynes was like, I have this, she called it a frock film. Oh my god. <laughs> and she was like, Are you, I think you might be interested in it. That's kind of how Haynes got clued into the project and was brought on. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Love Sandy Powell. She's great. Yeah, the costume choices for... Therese are actually really good because she starts off as somebody that's supposed to be somewhat young and sort of plain. And she has that hat that she wears that's like kind of ugly, <laughs> I think. <laughs> she has that plaid hat. The Santa hat? No, not the Santa hat. Like it's like a... The plaid one. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's a beret. It's not yeah. very nice, um, but it's very iconic. And then later on in that restaurant scene, when she starts working at the New York Times, like she is very put together. And in fact, her hair has also changed Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. kind of show that, you know, she has like grown and like become somebody who's kind of somewhat mirrored a little bit of the way that Blanche is. Like as much as she can be quite a forceful presence in some ways, but she's also very put together and somewhat performative in the way that she is. Mm. And in that restaurant scene, you can see that Therese is becoming somewhat performative to protect herself in a way, trying to protect herself from her feelings from Carol in that mm. scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Rudy Mara does such a great job with those layers. Yeah, she has to relearn how to be vulnerable. Mm. I really liked doing the research into Haynes for this film because, like, he had a very clear idea of what he was doing here and, like, the way that those roles would be inverted Yeah, in that scene and, like, how the costume and hair changes, like, show you the journey of Therese and how she changes through the like five months that this film elapses. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
I think when also thinking about Carol in the context of other queer films, it's starting to make more and more sense to me because like before Carol, the only big, like, I guess, Oscar playing queer films were, were basically Brokeback Mountain in, Mm -hmm. in the 2000s. And the way that that was received and the way that like, it really clearly should have won best picture and, and didn't. And like all those other things of how it was like taken by the public and also by people in Hollywood, it makes so much more sense why Todd Haynes for this big like Oscar Beatty period piece wanted to make as safe of a of a queer film as possible. Mm-hmm. Like yes it is like a queer film, but it, it does feel like a f- queer film that is very palatable to straight people mm-hmm. in like just its character construction where all the characters are very like straight passing because of the the society that they're living in right and the type of story is like the the main concern is like being outed in society and the, the those are the consequences that they have to deal with but at the end of the day it feels very safe for a movie that deals with queer characters and now, like, because we, we, we are in a time period where we are lucky to have more and more queer narratives, it, it seems very vanilla or just, like, very base layer. But I do think a lot of queer films today have a lot to owe to a movie like Carol and Todd Haynes and, like, being able to push that into the, the more mainstream Hollywood media. It's always surprising to me when now, at the point we're at now, movies come along that seem to be using or perhaps relying on that vanilla-ness, something like mm. Ammonite with Kate mm. Winslet and Saoirse oh. Ronan. It's like, are we still making these? Like, not that there's not more to say by going austere, but there's a, perhaps a cautiousness that yes. feels a little pat and that straight audiences don't need to be spoken to so much yeah or pander to yeah yeah but i i know i don't find that carol is i agree that it's very safe just by virtue of the story that it is yes it is very safe but i don't find that it's a film that is pandering i just find that it's a film that's actually extremely simple Hmm. i think the parts of it that are very inelegant are the men yeah. that are necessary to paint the backdrop of what's happening, but they're actually very uninteresting. Mm-hmm. But I think Haynes also purposefully films those scenes as quite uninteresting. Mm. They're shot usually quite simply. Yeah. Because it's only when you get to scenes of Carol and Therese where you get some more interesting stuff, especially in the car and in the conversations or using the kind of filtered look that he has in terms of like shooting through windows. I wouldn't say that no, I don't think you're talking about this film, at least, but um, I don't think this is pandering because like, it doesn't really... It is really just telling a love story in that sense. Yeah. And I think that's why it's palatable for straight audiences because it is really just about a love story. It's not about the more like thorny issues. It's really just, do you believe these two should be together? It's not even asking you for an opinion about whether like, you agree with LGBT issues. It's just saying that, do you yeah. think these two should be together? Yeah, you know. Well, I don't think that's like up for debate at all. But I, I, I would say like the, I have more issue with the main source of conflict just always being about, uh, being outed. Mm. Yeah, because that's like the that's the problem that a lot of straight people is like, oh, I, I see that. Like that's so regular. It's like, mm. yeah. Actually, I want to push back on that because actually, I think this film is written in a way that being outed isn't a problem because here the problem is actually. The, like, if you think about it, I don't know, like, I, it is the problem, but it's actually not the thing that they're resisting as much. Because if you look at what Carol does, like, at the end, yeah, she's just like, yeah, I'm not denying that part of myself. But it's not really like a coming out speech. Like, everyone knows, but it's more about the vehicle of the law being used against her mm-hmm. rather than, like, her comfort with people knowing that she is a lesbian. You see, like, that's kind of yeah, the distinction. Yeah, I'm but I, I, I also do feel like that sort of goes against, like, if you are trying to talk about the whole film in 
how Haynes plays with the idea of public versus private and right. in relation to like identity and queerness mm. and like being open and not being open. I feel like that is like the the main theme that he's mm. trying to go through, right? And even if it isn't a big deal for Carol to just come out and say that this is not the life that I want to leave lead, it is still like a like a major plot point right for them. Like even if it like emotionally doesn't really like torment them it is the the blocking that they need to get through in 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 the plot also i feel worth mentioning that the two actresses who are actually in real life lesbian in the cast sarah paulson as abby and carrie brownstein as a very carrie brownstein like person who appears for one scene at the end (laughs) don't end up paired off in a happy relationship at the end of the movie that feels a little weird that is a little weird. I didn't really think about that before. Mm. Interesting. I was thinking about, I mean, this is just to add on, like, as, like, something to think about. I don't know whether this affects the way that we should look at the film, but um, I was doing some reading about how in the period that this is being written, which is that it is being written in the contemporary time of 1952 when it was written, right? Mm-hmm. I found this little thing that Haynes is talking about where, like, people at the time like meaning that if you were a lesbian at that time, you weren't really sure how to talk about the thing, like this thing about your sexuality because there wasn't a language for it. Mm-hmm. And so like even an idea of like being out wasn't really like a question. Mm-hmm. That wasn't like a concept, right? Being out. It mm-hmm. was just like this thing where you find yourself attracted to a woman and you don't have like the language to talk about it. And apparently there is a line in the novel where, because it's all written in Therese's point of view, she talks about Carol and she says, I would call it love, but Carol is a woman. Mm. Which I think is a very interesting line because essentially, like in that moment of that line, like she is not sure what this is because as far as she knows, love is between a man and a woman, right? And so I think that's interesting because like there's this scene where Therese talks to her suitor, Richard, and she doesn't really explain herself very well she refuses to admit that it is like a sort of love that she has for carol at that point in time or even just an attraction and richard just keeps saying that she has a crush on her and then she doesn't really engage with that idea and i don't know i think that was just kind of interesting because like i didn't know what to make of like the fact that she wasn't denying it but also like she wasn't that ashamed of it as well in that sense i think i sense her shame in an avoidance of the question right. or accusation. Mm-hmm. I do too, a little bit. But yeah, I don't know. That is a very interesting line from the book. Yeah. Similarly to the thing I said about Netflix, like how how movies relate to the past and if they impose our values and the kind of narratives that mm-hmm. we want to have mm-hmm. onto the past, I think that's tricky territory. And mm-hmm. it's sidestepped here by being based on a novel that was written in 1952. Mm. I think it does very much so in the way that we're describing suit the moment of 2015 when it came out as a sort of transitional time between the Brokeback Mountain as the sole example of an LGBTQ narrative into more movies discussing that topic more openly. Mm. So... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I overall I see Carol as of its moment and I do see a lot of value in it. I, I think it's, as Wilson said at the top of the movie, a solid movie. Mm. And I also feel some limitations here and there. I think what I find interesting, and I think this is going to get interesting when we talk about Far From Heaven, is that I keep coming back to this word that Haynes kind of aligns himself with, which is subversiveness. Mm. And this is a film that's very pretty very well put together it's solidly made it's transgressive in its themes in a sense but done in a very palatable way for the masses which is why it really broke through so Mm. that sounds not subversive but in a way if you look at it from a different angle it's also extremely subversive because making these themes palatable is in a way trojan horsing it to the masses Mm. and i think like looking at this from that lens or from that angle makes me, I don't know, I think the fact that it's not like a a film that is pandering or like extremely trite is to its credit as well. 
Mm. But the fact that we have something like Carol that can be kind of the thing that breaks the dam a little bit mm-hmm. is in a way subversive. Oh, definitely. It is kind of part of like the kind of films that Haynes makes. Mm-hmm. Makes me think about Jonathan Demme's Philadelphia, which is dealing with the AIDS crisis and a narrative of a gay man who has AIDS in a very Hollywood Oscar way. And it's not a perfect movie because of that. It's impeccably made, I think, similarly to Carol. It's incredibly well directed. And also, I think its big limitation is probably that Tom Hanks's character has to be a perfect person and there's no complication of his character. Like, mm-hmm. we can only fall for him because he's so perfect a person. Mm. When in reality, no one should have to be condemned to death because the government isn't acting to stop the AIDS crisis, regardless of character. Mm. And maybe Carol fits into a similar point as you're saying, Ben, where it's a movie that has its own quality, has its own limitations, but serves in its historical context as moving the needle a little bit further of public opinion. And that's a very valuable mm-hmm. thing. It is. I don't think it should be taken for granted. Because like, even, like, it's been, what, seven years since it came out? But already so so much has changed in the in the movie landscape in the U.S. and globally as well, where LGBTQ stories are sought after by audience members. Carol also gets widely released less than a year after the legalization of gay marriage in the United States. Oh, yeah. Wow. Would have made our point more if gay marriage was legalized after the release, but... (laughs) Be like Carol single-handedly legalized gay marriage <laughs> in the states, but you know what I mean. Like it kind of shows you why. Also, like it kind of captured the moment, right? Yeah, in a sense, it was like part of a wave. Mm-hmm. And I have to know that, like in the last six years, a shit ton has happened. Like in the time since Carol, like yeah, a lot has. Some happened. would argue too much gay shit has happened. Yeah. Not not gay <laughs> shit, but just. <laughs> Stop. Putting words in Ben's mouth. I, I love how Ben, stuff. you're like, yeah. I just said stuff. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. <laughs> Caught in 4K. Caught in 320K BPS. <laughs> sir, sir, do you hate gay people? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> How do I wrap this up? Ending on a laugh is good too. On Wilson trying to make me seem homophobic? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. That's a terrible place to end. <laughs> For you. <laughs> it's a disclaimer. None of the people that host this podcast are homophobes. <laughs> That's what a homophobe would say. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. And be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod and join us to talk about movies on our Discord server to which you'll find a link in the description. And thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. My my deep cut pick flung out of space. <laughs> <laughs>